Now the second six commandments are all about us. Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, so on and so forth. So that's often called the, the second table of the law. And the, the Lord's Prayer is a bit like that. You've got the first three petitions are all about God and his worship. Uh, our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's all about him. And then the next three are all about us and our needs. Daily bread, forgiveness and protection from temptation. And I'm going to shortchange you, I'm afraid. I'm not even going to get to the third one because I've condensed four sermons into this weekend. But I'm sure maybe Steve could do that another time. So let's read again uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer. And then we'll think about forgive us. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So we just, um, earlier we're thinking about God giving us our daily bread and the kind of Things that change in the heart as a result of that, the humility that develops out of it, the trust and confidence that God gives us, and the gratitude, a kind of life of dependence on God making us thankful. And I think actually, you know, in some ways, none of that was really a surprise. None of it was really a surprise, because I think most people, when they pray, pray about that sort of stuff. They pray about their needs. They pray about sustenance. And they pray that God would, would give to them and provide for them. And even our atheist friends who've admitted they pray will often will pray about stuff they need. When you really sense your need, when you, you've reached the limits of your own ability to solve a problem, that's often when the prayer mat comes out and the shopping list comes out. Eggs, bacon, milk, loo rolls, girlfriend, husband, child, healthy body, Job, home, gold handbag. That's what my sister used to pray for. She was eight years old. Please give me a a gold handbag. (laughs) Needs, you know, things you'd really need. That's the sort of stuff we pray for. We pray for the things we need. But what about this next request? Forgive us our debts. What is this doing in the model prayer? Now, I've read a number of commentaries, as I like to do in preparation for these sermons, and it's really interesting. Nobody actually asks this question or or answers it. What is this doing in the model prayer? Jesus is giving his followers the scaffolding. He's giving them the pattern for how to pray. And evidently, asking for forgiveness is right at the heart of it. Jesus thinks that forgiveness is so essential that it's up there with your daily bread. I wonder if you've ever felt that your need for forgiveness is at least as important as your need to eat. They say you can live for three months without food, three days without water, three minutes without air. How long can you live without forgiveness? How necessary is it? Jesus puts it up there with daily bread. Give us our bread and and forgive us our debts. It's that vital. So for us to think like Jesus, we may have to go up a steep 
learning curve. Because our culture is not very big on sin and forgiveness. Our culture is into rights. Rights, what you deserve. Our culture is into equality, freedom, freedom of choice. And morality is based on what feels good, as long as you don't hurt anyone. And our culture emphasises justice and fairness, but not moral responsibility. If we do something wrong, we can usually find someone else to blame. We're rarely at fault. We're always victims. The reason I did it was my upbringing. My parents screwed me up. It was my hormones. It was my DNA. My grandmother was an axe murderer, QED. Now, along with that diminished sense of moral responsibility comes a reduction in the need of, for forgiveness. Because you don't feel the need to be forgiven because you don't really feel to blame. Now, the funny thing about this, the other side of the culture, is we're very into compensation. If somebody wrongs you, if they step on your toes, the culture applauds you in a quest for damages. We get very excited about compensation. Forgiveness? Not so much. We've lost our vocabulary of sin and forgiveness, but we must recapture it. We need to understand why Jesus thinks that forgiveness is so important. It's at least as important as eating, and maybe more important, because after all, it's the only request in the Lord's Prayer that gets an extension. He finishes, deliver us from the evil one, he goes back to this thing about forgiveness. If you forgive men when they sin, your Heavenly Father forgive you. If you don't... The Father won't forgive you. So prayers, this prayer for forgiveness is that important. So I've got three simple points today to, to finish with. One, we're in debt. Two, we can be forgiven. Three, we must forgive. Firstly, we are in debt. I love exclamation marks, by the way. My church administrator really hates them. So I'm on a campaign. So this week, I just went for it. Three, we're in debt. <laughs> Now, we're all familiar with the idea of being in debt. There are more opportunities to be in debt now than at any time in recent history. And lots of people get caught up in a, in a horrendous spiral of debt. According to The Guardian in March this year, UK high streets now have one short-term loan shop for every seven banks, building societies. One short-term loan shop for every seven banks. <coughs> high cost. Money lenders have become part of the landscape, and most of it is hidden. 80% of high-cost loans are actually online. Now, how much does a high-cost loan cost? Uh, interest rates in excess of 1,000% APR are commonplace. And the loans are designed to be repaid after a few days or weeks, but borrowers often roll over loans probably out of their just need and so the costs quickly mount up. The Guardian reported a debt charity uh, this debt charity had helped a client listen to this, he borrowed £200 and in three months he owed £1,851 from 200 to 1800 quid in three months debt I talked to a debt counsellor at our church he told me about a client who maxed out all his credit cards and then phoned the bank to ask for another bank loan on top of his mortgage. And he already had another loan on top of his mortgage, so this is the second <coughs> one, to pay off credit cards. But that's now putting his home at risk because the debt 
on a mortgage is secured against your home. So this, this thing is quite common. Debts mounting up and up and up until people feel like they're drowning. They feel swallowed up by it. And they've got no way to escape. Now just imagine that you were in debt, but you didn't know it. And then you've realised. 1968, my parents moved to Wales uh, so that my dad could work as a Methodist minister. It was their first ministry position and my parents were really wet behind the ears. They didn't have much life experience. They came from Oldham. They'd grown up in these little terraced houses. They'd lived with their parents. Now they were 25 and they moved into this enormous Victorian house that the church, the Methodist church owned. Wow! They're in this huge Victorian house and they had the heating on For the whole winter, in the whole house, just the two of them, living it up. And those big old Victorian houses take some heating. High ceilings, no insulation, gaps in the doors. And you know what? At the end of the first winter, the bill arrived. The bill was for £64. Doesn't sound like a lot to you. It was six weeks' wages. Just on the heating bill. Not so well. You see, they'd been building up this huge debt and they weren't even aware of it. Now, it would be quite possible for some of our friends here, I don't know you, most of you, it would be quite possible for you to have no idea that, that we all have a colossal debt to God and we've got no means to pay it. That's why Jesus uses this interesting phrase, Forgive us our debts. You might have learned, forgive us our trespasses in school. Now, why does he say debts in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer? Luke's, Luke records in the same sins. Why does Matthew say debts? Now, scholars think that Jesus was probably trilingual. Nazareth was at the crossroads, linguistically and culturally. Jesus was able to read Hebrew. And day to day he would speak Aramaic. Most likely he was familiar with Greek because of Joseph's carpentry business. And he may have had to know enough Latin to make his way through a local government office. So most scholars think Jesus was trilingual and some think he had some basic Latin as well. Now Jesus most likely preached in Aramaic. And in Aramaic, do you know what you often talk, how you often refer to sin? Death. It was your debt. Why so? Because sin is just like a debt. It's the most appropriate language for it. Sin is just like a debt because, listen to this, we get into debt when we fail to pay what is due. We get into debt when we fail to pay what is due. Now, what is due to God? What do we owe God? The answer is everything. Now we thought earlier today how every good thing we get comes from God. Your mother was a gift from God. Your life, every breath you take, your friends, your food, the drink you've had, your abilities, your opportunities, your mind, your education, every good gift you enjoy. Millions and millions of gifts have been showered on you through your whole life from your heavenly father. There has not been a single good thing in your life 
that you created. It all came from your heavenly father. And how have you treated that father? Have you searched for him and pursued him and done everything in your power to thank him? We haven't, have we? We owe him a debt of gratitude. More than that, we actually owe God obedience. He's the great king, the great Lord. We're his subjects. We were made for his pleasure. We owe him our lives. We owe him our loyalty. We owe him our obedience. Anything less is an act of high treason. So have you lived your whole life for God's glory? To please him and keep his commands in every way? Of course you haven't. Neither have I. More even than that, every sin we commit is actually a sin against God. How so? Because you never sin in isolation. Let me tell you a story. 2006, a 92-year-old woman called Catherine Johnston in Atlanta, Georgia, mistook some police who burst into her home for robbers. Now these police, there's something you can get in America called a no-knock warrant which means you can break down somebody's door without knocking. They had this warrant, and they burst into the house, and this 92-year-old woman fired a shot from an old pistol, because in America, even grannies have pistols tucked away somewhere, fired this shot over their heads as a warning shot, and the police responded by firing 39 times and killing her. After the shooting, they planted marijuana in her home, and it later emerged that they'd falsified the information that was even used to get the warrant in the first place. Now, against whom did those police sin? Now, obviously, Catherine Johnston. But she was a grandmother. She had children and grandchildren. Those men sinned against her family, didn't they? More than that, they sinned against the whole community. The community was outraged lost one of its members, a dear lady. They, those men sinned against justice. They were officers of the law, sworn to uphold it. They, 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 they committed a travesty against justice. And they sinned against their own colleagues because the action produced anger and hatred towards the whole police force. But you know what? Even though they sinned against family and children and community and neighbours and police and justice, there was someone else who was often ignored in sin. It is God. They sinned against God because they wrongly took the life of a human being. And that woman was made in the image of God. And God had nourished the life of Catherine Johnston from the moment of her birth, June 26, 1914, to the moment of her death at the hands of those men. 2006. Every sin is a sin against God. If a drunk driver hits a child and kills him, and the driver has to face the family and offer an apology, what on earth does he say to the parents? I had a few too many. Now, what would you say to the ultimate parent, the father of all life, the, the father who gives all these gifts to explain for your actions against his image bearers. How would you account for your murderous, raging, angry thoughts? Your heart sometimes full of hate to somebody. How would you account for your words, which 
can be nice, but often slander and gossip, sometimes destroy a reputation, tear somebody down, belittle them, make them feel this big. How would you account for your bitter heart, which harbours resentment and envy and jealousy? Every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies a little. How would you account for your apathy and coldness towards the needs of other people, except for a few that you've chosen? How would you account for your lust, which dishonours God as well as the person you're lusting for? How would you account for your perversion, which might be a secret, but you would be deeply ashamed if others found out, and God knows about it now. Every sin is a sin against God, our Father. So you see, not only do we owe God our lives and our gratitude, because everything comes from him, and yet we don't thank him, we just rage at him when things don't work out. Not only do we owe God our obedience, but we ignore his demands all the time, except in trifling ways when we feel like it. Yet we also sin against his image bearers all the time. And every sin is a sin against God. Now, are you beginning to get a sense of the size of our debt? Our debt towards God. It's not six weeks' wages. It's an iceberg that would sink the Titanic. Now, if you're not a Christian here, and again, I don't know you, and Steve hasn't briefed me. I don't know who's who here. If you're not a Christian and you know that, let me speak to you, friend. This debt will sink you. Because it's, it's not an unsecured loan. It is secured against your life. Even now, your debt is weighing you down in the sight of a perfect holy God. And you're walking on thin ice. You're just creeping out into that bit where it's too thin. And it's only the patience and mercy of God that's preserving you and keeping you from tumbling into hell by the weight of your debt. You're stooped under it. So will you pray this in sincerity? Father, forgive us our debts. But thankfully there's a second point. We can be forgiven. See, Jesus teaches his followers to pray, Father, forgive us our debts. Which must mean there's a way for God to clear your debt. Now the Bible uses a number of words and images to show the nature of forgiveness. One word that it uses is this, taking away. It's an image of someone carrying a heavy burden that will sink him. And another one comes up and lifts it off. Takes it away and he's free to stand. And this is an image that the Bible uses. The heavy burden of sin is on us. God lifts it from us and lays it upon someone else. A second image is covering. Covering. This word means someone covering something over so that it can't be seen anymore. So it can't be accounted for. And God, the Bible says, covers our sin so that it won't be charged against us. A third word is blotting out. Blotting out. This is the image of a creditor who gets his book of of debtors and loans and the debtor pays off the loan and he strikes through it. Big red marker. Can't see it anymore. It is crossed out. And the Bible says that God blots out our sins and transgressions. And another word phrase is casting into the depths of the sea now this image implies that God takes your sins and he buries them out of his sight so they can't speak against you anymore 
He will throw them into the sea. This is like toxic waste being plunged into the deepest bunker and covered over. Not like a cork that's going to rise up again, and, but like lead, it sinks to the bottom. Now, these are wonderful images, right? Taking away, covering, blotting out, casting into the depths of the sea. But how does God manage your debt? How does he manage your debt? If it's so colossal, this iceberg, how is he going to deal with it? Because debt doesn't just go away, does it? Someone has to pay. The answer is the cross. The cross of Jesus is how God deals with our debt. At the cross, Jesus Christ took the debt of sin for millions, probably billions of people, and he paid it in full. He alone of all humanity had a clear record, no debt, and a perfect credit rating. And at the cross, he took our debts and he paid the price. God the Father, let's go back to those images, took your heavy burden. He lifted it up, off, and Jesus gladly took it for you, being crushed under its weight. Jesus' blood ran from his wounds, and it covers your sins so that they will not be seen again. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect once for all. The merit of his life, his AAA credit rating, was credited to you, and God takes a pen and draws a line through the dead. And because of that cross, all your sins, every one, can be cast into the heart of the sea, never to be seen again. So Jesus teaches you, he teaches us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts, and Jesus knows how the debts are going to be paid. We can be forgiven. And this not by trying harder and harder and doing your best, that would be useless. So we can be forgiven by trusting Jesus, not by going through ritual, religious ceremonies and rites, but by looking to the cross and leaning our weight on him and trusting him and asking him to take my sins too. Just need to look. There's no magic involved. So let me ask, have you done this? Have you done it? Have you looked to Jesus? Have you, have you trusted him? Let me tell you about a boy called Neil Kendall. A number of years ago, Melissa and I used to run a church youth group for teenagers in Chessington with a bunch of other leaders. Every Friday night, we'd meet, we'd play games, we'd share the gospel about Jesus. And over the years, hundreds of kids in that town came through the group. And I've never forgotten this one boy, Neil Kendall. He was about 15, 16, real local Chessington lad. Just a nice kid. Uh, went to an ordinary school and came from an ordinary family, not a Christian family. And he came along. He was quite earnest. He was listening. We offered this course. You could go and st- like Christianity Explored kind of course. And he came along and he did the six weeks. And he was listening and paying attention. And at the end of all of that, we asked him, Neil, if you die tonight and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And he thought for a moment and he said, well, I was a good person and I did my best. I was a good person and I did my best. You know, he'd completely missed the point. Don't you see? If you see that your debt is as big as the Bible says, how could you think that you were a good person? You haven't lived a good life 
and your best could never pay off that debt. You need Jesus. In fact, let me go even further here. To say I've done my best is an insult to Jesus Christ. He would not have had to die on the cross if your best was good enough. It was the only way for him to bring you forgiveness. We're in debt, but we can be forgiven. And that leads us then to this final natural conclusion that we must forgive. Jesus adds a condition to the prayer. And remarkably, he brings it right into the model prayer as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now in case we miss the point, he says it again in verses 14 and 15. If you forgive men when they sin against you, the Father will forgive you. If you don't, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now what is this teaching? What is Jesus actually teaching here? Notice, first of all, we are to forgive our debtors. Forgive our debtors. That means forgiving people, not just individual sins. That means not holding anything against someone because they did it, but forgiving the person. Forgive our debtors. Notice that it's our debtors. These are people who have sinned against you personally. So I am not able to forgive Vladimir Putin. Right? He hasn't sinned against me personally. But I am able to forgive those who have wronged me, who owe me a debt. So then, we're all thinking, are there any limits? Are there any limits to how much we should forgive someone? You think, well, I can forgive this much, but I can't forgive that person. It depends. It all depends on how much you think God has forgiven you. If you're asking God to forgive me as we also have forgiven our debtors, then surely our forgiveness should reflect the generosity of God's. Now, is this some kind of tit-for-tat arrangement? God will only forgive me if I do my part and forgive other people first. Sounds a bit like that, doesn't it? Matthew 18 fills out the picture. Jesus told a story that actually explains this in story form. I'm sure you know it, but let me read it to you anyway. Peter came to Jesus and said, How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Thinking, that's about the maximum I want to. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, relatively small amount. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. 
And they went away and told the master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. What Jesus is teaching, I think, is this. The mark of someone who's been forgiven by God is that they're ready to overlook the comparatively small sins of others against them. And the heart that cannot bring itself to forgive another human evidently doesn't think that it needs to be forgiven much itself. If you can't bring yourself to forgive someone, you really mustn't think that God has forgiven you much. See, this is the hallmark of whether someone is a true Christian or not. A true Christian is someone who knows that they are deeply sinful, but God forgave them all the same, and their debt, which they could never repay, 10,000 talents, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. A true Christian looks at the cross and sees Jesus dying in their place. And so they are able to forgive from the heart, the debtors who have wronged them. And that is radical, isn't it? Because nobody else in the world does this. You know that. No one else in the world does this. No one except true Christians. Nobody else in the world believes they've been forgiven as much as we do. So, I say this, I'm trying to say this gently. If you are not forgiving someone at the moment, if you, can, if you say in your heart, I can't forgive her, I can't forgive him that, then where is the evidence that you are a true follower of Jesus? Someone who has been forgiven much. Let's start now. Charity begins at home. So does forgiveness. It must do. If you don't forgive here within the cornerstone churches, then we certainly won't forgive anyone outside it. And if we don't forgive each other, then we're not functioning as we ought to. Cornerstone churches are communities of the forgiven. And therefore, you must be communities that forgive each other. So it's not an optional extra. It is basic Christianity. So I'm going to pause for a moment and just ask you, not to, you don't have to say it out loud, but in the, in the silence, is there someone in the Cornerstone Church community who you have not forgiven? Can you see that person in your mind's eye? Will you do so today? Now then, is there anyone else? But Jesus says very strongly, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. The final day may bring some surprises. Some of those who we all thought were fine, upstanding churchgoers will be banished from the presence of God. He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. You didn't exhibit any of my character, really. How do you know if you're going to be a sheep or a goat? One easy test. Do you forgive? I'm not saying it's easy. Sometimes it's not. I'm not saying it's necessarily instant either. Sometimes you have to work at forgiveness. I'm sorry, I was going to ask you if I could tell this illustration. She knows what it is. A, a close friend of my wife ruined our wedding day. A close friend, female friend. 
spoiled the whole day for Melissa. The wedding that you build up for for months, you know, all the plans and buying the dress and all, all, all the guests. One person spoiled it all. And Melissa had to work at forgiving that, that girl, that woman. She had to work at it. And sometimes, you know, it takes time. If you've been really deeply hurt and offended, and rightly offended, it will take time to forgive. I'm not being superficial about this. But she did work it through, and she did forgive it. And even now to this day, you could see her and look her in the eye and be friends again. not saying it's easy, but there should be a direction of travel towards that person. There should be a warmth, not a coldness of heart. There should be a growing sweetness, not a bitterness. It should be a softening over time as the Spirit does his work in us. So let me finish with this question. Some of you may have been asking already, if forgiveness is through the cross once for all, why should we pray this every day, day after day? Why should we have to pray in the model prayer, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors? Because we so quickly forget the depth of our sin. We so quickly forget, and then we quickly harden our hearts against others. We need this prayer for our sakes. Because if we are true followers of Christ, we will start to act like him more and more. And you remember, this is how he treated his enemies. Father, on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Well, God give us the grace to do that and to be people who pray. We pray the Lord's Prayer. Shall we pray together? Let's all pray it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you.